let's have our preliminary <laughs> of the Irish Rockets show. Okay, it's the Irish astronaut. Oh, the Irish um, astronauts. Okay, okay let's start it. Welcome, right. welcome to the Irish Astronaut, our podcast about the NBA and more specifically the prospects of the Celtics and the Rockets as they play in the bubble this year. Today, we'll be talking specifically about the Rockets and how their small ball lineup has worked for them in the first two games of the year. And we'll start by talking about something unorthodox, the Rockets' defense and how small ball can actually be helpful. Murtaza, what do you think Daryl Morey is going for on defense? Yes, sir. First of all, I'd like to thank all of our viewers for listening to this podcast. We wouldn't be running this without your support. When it comes to Daryl Morey's philosophy, it's pretty clear. He believes that small players are inherently more skilled than larger players because they needed, they couldn't rely on their athleticism or their size to get them into the league. So now when you have players like James Harden and Russell Westbrook who are incredibly fast and twitching to be able to get a lot of steals or PJ Tucker, or Robert Covington, who have already acquired a lot of a lot of information about on-ball defense, it's pretty clear that they have the ability to play defense in an, a very untraditional way. So instead of focusing on the rebounds, they instead get extra possessions by stealing the ball and deflecting passes. And that's how they kind of cancel out with the rebounding disadvantages. That's great, Murtaza. So one other area of concern especially when it comes to james harden is effort on defense so the rockets play a smaller rotation than most teams with eight guys in the regular lineup now that eric gordon is out with an injury so what do you think explains james harden's inconsistency when it comes to effort on defense so i agree for the past maybe five six years since uh, james harden has been a houston rocket it's been pretty clear that he's been pretty inconsistent on defense. However, this year, I think it's a lot easier for James Harden to play well on defense because he can rely on Russell Westbrook. Although I approve of the Chris Paul years in Houston, in Houston uh, he wasn't at his prime, especially in the last season. So now at that point, it was very clear that James Harden was leading the offense and Chris Paul was sort of an auxiliary piece. However, this year in the 2019-20 season, Russell Westbrook and James Harden almost take the ball just as much, like at an equal proportion. And so they're able to share the offensive load. That means that James Harden has more energy in the tank on the defensive side, where he's already one of the best post defenders in the league and, and consistently ranks among one of the top players in steals. Okay, great. So we've talked about what happens on the perimeter. Um, which is where the Rockets' defense really has their strong suit. But in the post is where people expect the Rockets to struggle, because with matchups like Anthony Davis or JaVale McGee against P.J. Tucker, who is the Rockets' only semi-center, it's very difficult yeah. to imagine the Rockets holding down the post. So what do you think the Rockets can improve on in order to make sure that teams don't ramp up those post points? Sure, so I think the best defensive strategy that the Rockets have right now is they just decide to switch everything in comparison to the Bucks, who might just allow three-pointers and allow the others of your team to beat you, as we saw in this recent game between the Bucks and the Rockets. The thing that the Rockets need to improve on is that communication factor and that intensity factor. Although the Rockets can be extremely good on defense in short stints, 
they have yet to prove that they are able to sustain that type of effort over the entire game. And unfortunately, when you're dealing with teams that are very explosive, like the Lakers or the Clippers, who can score points in a quick succession, you have to be able to keep up that intensity for a long amount of time. And communication is another aspect of that of that defensive um, of that defensive pressure. Without the communication, the constant switching that the Rockets defense continues to do will simply not work. Okay, great. So from here, we're going to shift gears and talk a little about the Rockets offense. So the first game that the Rockets had in the bubble was against the Mavericks, a high scoring game in which both teams rained down completely. But in both of their games so far, the Rockets have struggled with three point shooting, which is usually a point of strength for them. So what do you think explains that? Is it just rust coming into the bubble? And if so, how can the Rockets improve going forward? So I was reading an article the other day and I think for the season, the Houston Rockets average around 34, 33% on three pointers, which is definitely not, you know, one of the best shooting percentages in the league. But if you take out all of the threes that James Harden makes, then the team percentage is actually at around 37%, which would be one of the top in the league. So I think what explains it is that, although I love James Harden, sometimes he just decides to take a three-pointer especially like ill-advised three-pointers that don't really have, don't, they don't really make sense over the course of the game. Uh, Russell Westbrook was initially like that too, but he was able to cut down those unnecessary three-pointers over the course of the year. But the other thing about Houston's three-point percentage is that because they take so many threes, they don't necessarily have to have an incredibly high percentage while shooting them. So for instance, over the Bucks game, they shot nearly 61 threes, which was like an NBA record or tied an NBA record. But they only shot, they only made about like 21. But if you compare that to the Bucks, who shot around 30 and only made nine, that was almost more than 12 more three-pointers made for the Rockets, leading to 36 extra points. So although the Houston Rockets should definitely try to increase their shooting percentage, maybe by just like working the ball to around and you know passing up good shots for great shots it's not the achilles hill of the team as long as they shoot a respectable percentage if they jack the three-pointer enough they'll get a lot of points yeah i'm actually going to agree with you there i think you just changed my mind because now that i think about it i think harden's high usage rate and the fact that he shoots so many threes is more important than whether he makes them because teams know that Harden is a three-point shooting threat and that he's willing to pull up even if it's a bad shot they play him very closely on the perimeter which is what helps the Rockets with their five-out spacing get so many drives in the paint one thing that I thought was interesting in the Mavericks game was that the Rockets had almost as many points in the paint or I think more points in the paint than the Mavericks, even though the Mavs have Boban and Kristaps Porzingis. And the reason for that is because they have so many drives, with Russ and Harden getting inside very often, and then when they can't shoot, kicking it out to their strong perimeter shooters like Ben McElmore or P.J. Tucker. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And 
if you honestly look at the Rockets' offense, it's a very simple offense compared to other teams, especially the high-caliber teams like the Lakers or the Clippers. The Rockets are going to do one of two things. They're either going to go to the paint or they're going to get a three-pointer. With Russell Westbrook, he's just going to continue to drive. If there's an open man, he's going to kick it out for a three-pointer. And if they're not, if they're if the defenders are sticking to the three-point uh, shooters, like in the corner, if they're sticking to PJ Tucker and Robert Covington, then it's an e- it's an easy drive for Russell Westbrook to the paint. And the same thing applies for James Harden, although he's better as a shooter. Then the, there's an additional threat that James Harden will go with a step back three and knock you out there. So the Rockets' offense is very simple, and it just prioritizes the most high-percentage shots. So the three-pointer, you're always going to get more points than a two-pointer. And although it's about the same difficulty to shoot a jump shot or an elbow shot in the mid-range and a three-pointer, you're still going to get more points off the three-pointer than you are the jump shot. And then, of course, the paint is the closest shot to the basket, so you're going to obtain a lot of points from going to the paint. And of course, you can never forget James Harden and Russell Westbrook always getting to the free throw line because of their physicality in their game. And they can average anywhere around 12 to 13 free throw makes out of like 14, 15 attempts. And that already boosts how many points they can get per game. One thing I find interesting is that the Rockets aren't using the traditional pick and roll as much as other teams. And even when they do go to the pick and roll, the play isn't often made by the driver. And they don't mm-hmm. kick it out to the roll man either. Rather, what they'll do is find one of their guys on the corner and hit them for the three off the pick and roll. But even saying that, I think James Harden in isolation without the pick and roll is perhaps even more dangerous. Because teams, when they're guarding Harden, like to push him right because, of course, he's a lefty. And they also like to put two men on him, right, because he's such a dangerous scoring threat. And when the pick and roll happens, it makes it a lot easier for them to force him right because now they have two guys to do it and they have two potential shot blockers. So I think it's it's smart that the Rockets have pivoted away from the pick and roll in recent years because that's what's giving them more scoring opportunities. Yeah, I agree, Ethan. That like the Rockets don't really use the pick and roll in a traditional way. What they'll do is they get the pick and roll to switch a big on and so then it's very easy for them to exploit that on the post or a dunking point. And then even when the defense tries to switch, and of course this does to other matchups on the offensive end, so it allows for bigger guys. Murtaza, can you get any closer to the mic? Uh, just give me one moment. All right. Yeah, you sound good now. Okay. Anything else you wanted to say? I was just saying that the Rockets don't use the traditional pick-and-roll offense. You know, it just allows Harden to get a bigger guy on him and make it easier for him to drive to the basket or shoot up for a uh, step-back three-pointer. And then it creates unfavorable matchups for the rest of the team by allowing P.J. Tucker, Robert Covington, and the other role players to get open and make three-pointers. I will say there is one... I'm not sure if you watched the Bucks game... 
But I think there is a con legitimate concern with the Houston Rockets offense, which is that they have to work so hard on the defensive end uh, through their switching that it leads to tired legs on the offensive end. And when you're taking so many three-pointers, eventually at the end of the game, you're going to get really tired. So what do you think about that? Do you think the Rockets will have that issue throughout the playoffs, or do you think they can get over that? I think the big problem comes down to Westbrook and Harden because they're the guys that are moving the most on the court, and they're also the guys that are getting the most minutes. Because of Houston's small rotation, right, as I said, eight guys without Eric Gordon, it's very difficult for them to stay on their feet and keep moving, especially because both of them depend on explosive drives to the basket. Whereas someone like Austin Rivers or Ben McElmore is just sitting on the three-point line, and even if there is some off-ball movement, they don't depend on that explosive speed. So when it comes to the playoffs down the stretch, um, with game after game, with a slower pace, usually in the playoffs, I think it's going to be difficult for them to stay active and explosive on those long possessions. I agree, and... I guess the hope is that the four months of rest was plenty for Harden and Westbrook to kind of catch their breath. Um, it does seem that they both got into shape. Um, Harden looks a lot quicker than he used to. And although he wasn't, he's not one of the fastest players in the NBA, he does definitely have, you know, an extra level now to his speed. And Russell Westbrook is always just going to be the athletic freak that we know he is. We've already seen it in his Oklahoma City Thunder days where he just continues to terrorize the paint and, you know, with his freakish athleticism, just drive opponents out of the way. So I agree. I mean, hopefully, hopefully we'll see that the endurance keeps up in this bubble format, especially because there's so many games packed into such a tight schedule. One thing I'm interested to see is how Russ's production will change as he ages. Because as you said, right now his game is really dependent on his athleticism, right? Um, compared to Harden, who's more dependent on, I guess, his skill, right? His shooting and his ability to create space with step backs. So when it comes to how Russ will age, I think that's a, a factor that Houston has to take into account, especially given the massive size of Westbrook's contract and how that prevents them from making additional signings in the future they do have yeah. some younger shooters who perhaps can evolve into the role that Harden once had so say um ben mcelmore or austin rivers who might be able to up their athletic game and improve when driving to the paint those drives that russ isn't able to make as he slows down and ages no i agree and then we're just gonna have to see you know how westbrook's game evolves um, he's never really been uh, that good of a shooter, although his mid-range game is pretty good. But as you said, all of his game is pretty dependent on his athleticism. And although he has certain skills, you know, despite the athleticism, it still revolves around that core element. Um, we'll see, to be honest, because... I'm not even sure if Rusbrook was in his prime, how many teams would be willing to take such a massive contract on. But, you know, you can always rely on the Cavs or the Pistons to make some sort of mistake. So, hopefully. Yeah, maybe if RJ Barrett doesn't work out for the Knicks, he'll be <laughs> shopping. Hey. <laughs> but okay, anyway. Now we'll take our 
ad break. Today's episode is sponsored by Chanksy's Lego Sales. Chanksy Gang has all of your Lego needs with a collection worth over $10,000, including a Millennium Falcon that he built all by himself. In addition, Chanksy yes, can give you lessons on Lego history on a weekly basis for a subscription of just five ninety nine. Okay. Well, you always know, just, just to add on to that, Chanksy is a good friend of this show. He's always welcome on this show. And his products, I can tell you from personal experience, are A1. One of the best products, one of the best markets in the game. If you want any of your Lego needs to be fulfilled, go to Chanksy's house right now. Now, that's an endorsement if I've ever heard one. So, yes, sir. in the second, somewhat shorter portion of our episode, We'll be talking about the Rockets' struggle and success in the bubble. So as you might know, the Rockets are currently 1-1 one one after suffering a close loss to the Bucks and then edging one out. Wait, after hold the up, hold up, hold up. Wrong, wrong. They're 2-0. They beat the Bucks, Ethan. They, they beat the Bucks. They didn't beat the Bucks. They literally did. The Rockets or the Celtics? The Rockets beat the Bucks. Oh, I'm talking about the Celtics. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, you said okay. Rockets. Okay, that's chill. Yeah, Celtics, yeah. Yes, we're on to the Irish part of our Irish Astros. Irish part of the broadcast, let's go. Okay, so anyway, yes, the Celtics are 1-1 one one after losing a closely contested game to the Bucks, in which the refs made some questionable late-game decisions. And then we won over... Uh, we won over the Trailblazers after losing a 24-point lead in spectacular yeah. fashion. So, um, I guess I'll start off as our resident Celtics fan. The big story of these two games has been Jason Tatum. Tatum, who is performing like perhaps an all-star starter after the all-star break, saw horrible performance in his first game, um, shooting like a rec league player, shooting like Ian Mercada. But then in his second game, he came back to drop 34 points, supplemented by 30 points from Jalen Brown. And so let's talk about that first game. As many commentators noted, there were some questionable calls at the end. What do you think about the refs, Murtaza? Man, I think it's pretty clear that the referees consciously or unconsciously favor some of the stars in this league. Uh, I'd be remiss to say that James Harden doesn't benefit from this. Russell Westbrook, of course, benefits from this. But I think now, most clearly, you see Giannis Antetokounmpo benefiting from these calls. And it's not just getting away from, with fouls on the defensive end. It's primarily getting away with clear offensive calls on that side of the floor. I think the problem is that Giannis's game is as acting as a freight train almost, where he can just barrel down the court, hit one or two players, in this case the Celtics, and just drive to the hoop and make easy baskets. The problem I think that the refs have they don't know whether to call that as a foul or not, given that pretty much every play that he does involves one or two players getting bodied out of the way. But, I mean, time will only tell to see whether Giannis will be fouled out, especially in these important playoff games where the refs really matter. Yeah, I think Giannis's play is a version of the traditional trolley problem in philosophy, where you can score, but you have to kill two guys to do it. So yeah. just to, to be specific about the calls in question, 
Celtics fans such as myself were outraged about two calls in particular late in the first quarter. First, when Giannis gave Daniel Tyson not shot on defense, and second, when he barreled over Marcus Smart, who was clearly in position for a charge. And so one has to wonder whether the financial incentives of the league are twisting the minds of refs. So for instance, um, the league most recently fined Marcus Smart $15,000 for speaking out, which seems somewhat mm-hmm. hypocritical in a league that says they value free speech. Um, mm. It's time to end the censorship coming from Adam Silver and free Marcus Smart. Hashtag free Marcus Smart. He is speaking, for, you are speaking from a level of contempt that we rarely see from you, Ethan. Uh, oh, get ready for contempt. That, that's what this this whole podcast and is about. That's be. what this podcast is all about, viewers. This is what this podcast is all about. Um, yes. But... To be fair, I will say that when I was watching the game, I agreed that the nut shot on Tice was kind of weird, to say the least. Because the referees were asking whether it was a hostile act, but they didn't give. they ended up not giving a foul at all which kind of begs the question, why would you review if it was a hostile act if it wasn't even a foul? And given that the referees also stopped play, you would assume that at least a common foul would have been called on Giannis Antetokounmpo. But with regards to the Celtics call um, with Marcus Smart, I think that's a little bit more debatable. I think at that point, you kind of just go based on what the referee decided. But uh, to be honest, Giannis shouldn't have been on the floor at that point after that nut shot to Thais. Yes, and that turned out to be very important given that Giannis scored several points late in the fourth. And, mm-hmm. and more broadly than those foul calls, I still think that that Bucks game was problematic for the Celtics, given that that couldn't be a playoffs matchup, and that also that Eric Bledsoe was out that game. The Bucks were missing their starting point guard, and yet the Celtics still fell. And even more worrisome was Jason Tatum's struggling shooting performance. If that returns later in the bubble or even in the playoffs, it could be disastrous for the Celtics. However, I would say that the... There, there shouldn't be too much to extrapolate from that game. I think when you have Jason Tatum, who has been a perennial all-star all year, have literally one of the worst games of his career, I don't think you can just point that to the books. I think that was just Jason Tatum himself feeling a little bit off that night. Maybe cutting his hair worked, because in the following game against the Trailblazers, he performed well. But I agree. I think... I think to a certain extent, because the Celtics are such a young team with, you know, their main stars being under the age of 25, like Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, they might struggle to, you know, keep the foot on the gra- keep the foot on the gas, especially late in games, which is why you saw them kind of blow a 20 something point lead to the Blazers. Because at that point in their career, they're just kind of coasting, I think. Whereas, you know, some of the more experienced players in the league, like Harden and LeBron, would just put the foot on the neck even further and say, we want to just finish this game outright. Yeah, that's an important point. And it's been a regular criticism of the Celtics that they don't play all four quarters. And bench scoring has been particularly problematic because coming off the bench in a normal lineup, you would have Marcus Smart, who, while he's strong on defense, has yet to show his potential as an offensive superstar. And also, our 
backup center, Grant Williams, who's a rookie, also very strong defensively, but struggling to find his shot. So because of those two factors, I believe Celtics bench scoring is either 28th or 29th in the league. And so while that's largely made up for by our star starting lineup, it's not enough in many close games, which is how Portland came back. And if I were to offer suggestions to the Boston Celtics, Danny Ainge, Brad Stevens, whoever, I think I would modify the starting lineup to make it a little bit more balanced. I would do that by putting Gordon Hayward on the bench. Because although Gordon Hayward is a pretty integral piece of part of the team, if you put him on the bench, he would be by far one of the best bench players, not on just in the Celtics, but in any game that he comes off the bench in. And then that way you have a perennial all-star who can, you know can get him himself a shot or get shots for his teammates. Whereas you keep Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum in the starting lineup. I agree that that would probably help the Celtics offensively to have Marcus Smart in the starting lineup and Gordon Hayward coming off the bench for more bench production. The only problem I see is when it comes to post defense and size in the paint, Gordon Hayward has been our sort of third biggest guy, which is really helpful playing lineups against, say, the Bucks, right? Who play big lineups where Tice can't handle um, Brooke Lopez or Giannis Antetokounmpo by himself, and they need Hayward to come into the paint to help. I'm not sure if Marcus Smart, who's more confined to the perimeter, can do the same thing, even given that Marcus Smart played some good defense on Giannis in that Bucks game. Yeah, and I think Marcus Smart sometimes gets doesn't get the credit that he deserves on the defensive side of the ball. As a player, he's one of the best defenders. And in the same way that Patrick Beverly kind of plays mind games on his opponents, Marcus Smart acts in the same way. I remember, I think maybe a year ago or two years ago, there was a game between my Rockets and your Celtics where Harden literally fouled like Marcus Smart three times in the last 20 seconds of the game because he was so mad that Marcus Smart was like trash talking him and like getting up all in his grill and stuff like that. So that psychological element that Marcus Smart possesses sometimes feels undervalued by the broader NBA community but should definitely not be understated. Mm -hmm. The psychological element is definitely important, given that Marcus Smart doesn't have the quickness of some other guards. And mm -hmm. so, so talking about that second game against the Trailblazers, one theme was Tatum versus Lillard. Given Lillard's slow first half and Tatum's slow second half, um, which raises questions of stamina and clutch performance, as Paul George knows very well Damian Lillard is one of the most clutch performers in the league, whereas Jason Tatum has struggled in late games. And more broadly, looking at the Celtics next year, um, I guess observers are saying that the Celtics should target bigs, especially defensive bigs, given that Daniel Tice has been somewhat of a defensive liability and Jason Tatum isn't big enough to guard some big fours, like say, AD or Giannis in some lineups. So who do you think the Celtics should chase after when it comes to bigs this year? I'm in, in free agency, right? In free agency or through trade. The Celtics, the Celtics like to play a very fast style of basketball a lot of the time. 
you know, a lot of three-pointers, similar to the Rockets, just not at the same level. Um, I think the one of the targets that I would maybe look for is Kevin Love, given that he's in a pretty abysmal situation in Cleveland. At this point, they'll take anything to take him off the books because Cleveland is looking to start a new direction with younger talent, such as Colin Sexton and Darius Garland. So picking up Kevin Love might be a very good move for the Celtics, where they can utilize his offensive prowess and shooting three-pointers to space out the floor for Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown to drive into the paint. And Kevin Love is pretty good defensively and can take some and can block shots when need be. Okay, great. So with that, we're going to wrap up this week's episode of The Irish Astronaut. Thank you to our loyal viewers for joining us. And again, appreciation to our sponsor, Chanksy's Legos. If you'd like to us to continue this series, just let us know in the DMs, you know, in the messenger chats, everywhere that you have our contact information. In future episodes, we'll certainly invite some of the guests from in and around the Houston area and around the Boston Celtics supporting cast. And we'll make sure that this podcast continues to grow, maybe reaching Joe Rogan levels very, very soon. Yeah, Breakfast Club coming your way. All right. Thank you, listeners. That's it for this week. Signing off for now.